0: welcome to crossroads the infrastructure podcast this is your host andrew vitelli the news editor of the energy in the americas for infralogic thank you for tuning in today our guest today is will smales a partner and the chief investment officer for the global infrastructure manager morrison which is headquartered in new zealand will thank you for joining the program
1: today thanks for having me andrew
0: so I'd imagine most of our listeners are familiar with Morrison, but just for those who aren't, can you talk a little bit about the firm's history and where its focus is in the market today?
1: Morrison is a global infrastructure manager, and we have a team of you know 180 professionals across seven offices around the world. I'm based in New York. We have teams in Europe and in the Asia Pacific as well. And we just focus on infrastructure. So we're deploying capital, every day of the week into infrastructure assets across a number of sectors. And you know, for Morrison, our purpose is to invest wisely in ideas that matter, and that guides our investment decisions.
0: And what about you? What's your background? How did you end up working in the infrastructure space and joining Morrison?
1: Yeah, Andrew, you might detect from my accent that I grew up in New Zealand and spent many, many years in Australia. I was going to say New Jersey. the other new. For Morrison, that's interesting as well, because Morrison actually originated from New Zealand. And New Zealand is not well known for infrastructure money managers or financial managers in general. I think it's more famous for its scenery and, and sheep. But Morrison has grown up over 30 years. And over that 30 years, it participated very early on in the government privatization of infrastructure assets. So if you go back, 30 years, the assets that were being privatised by governments in in many parts of the world, but particularly in Australia and New Zealand, were things like electricity networks, water networks, ports, airports. And Morrison really learnt its trade by participating very early on in, in those industries. And sort of fast forward today, we're now spending a lot of time, not only in those industries, but really thinking about the themes that drive the next wave of infrastructure investment. And unsurprisingly, two of those themes are energy transition and decarbonization and digitization and connectivity. You know, they're two major themes that we think about a lot and we're investing behind.
0: Now, we've spoken about these themes before, and I know you think, and Morrison as an institution feels that there's more than ever a convergence between those two, between the energy transition and the digital world today. How are those two related? How are they synergistic? And how are these two sectors or these two areas converging now?
1: To give you an example, some of the largest loads, energy loads on the grid today are data centers, whilst of global energy demand from data centers is only around 2%, but to put that in context, that's sort of 460 terawatt hours, which is equivalent to the total consumption in Germany or France, to put it in perspective. You know, whilst energy globally for data centers is running at that level, our prediction is that it's going to accelerate dramatically. What we believe is that the world of digital investment, i.e. investing to build data centers, all of a sudden becomes closely coupled with where you're deploying your capital to build new energy generation. And as we know, the lowest cost energy generation capacity to build is utility scale, solar, and in some cases, wind.
0: So how does that work on an investment basis? Instead of investing in a wind farm on the one hand and then a data center on the other, are you investing in projects and comprise both these technologies?
1: It's really being driven by the customers. So if you think the biggest customers in the world today of data center capacity are the hyperscalers. So this is Amazon Web Services, Microsoft Azure, Meta, Google, being the key customers in the sector and these customers have very public sustainability goals you know most of these customers have said that by 2030 they will be 100% renewable energy on yes you know, for 20 you know every every hour of every day in fact of every minute of every hour in each of the grids that they have facilities running so when you think about these customers saying, look, that's what we demand. As an energy developer, you know, thinking about where you're funding new development projects, you need to be thinking about where that demand is going to be. And the demand is going to be where these hyperscalers are choosing to build their data centers. You know, and that demand, as I was referencing before, we think will start increasing exponentially.
0: So is the question more thinking about how digitization and energy are going to relate as you are looking at individual investments in each space or on a single investment basis, there has to be each of these components for really successful investment. It's
1: looking at both of the components. So, you know, as an energy developer today, you're looking to find counterparties to purchase your power. So you're looking to write power purchase agreements in the market. And, And increasingly, a significant portion of those power purchase agreements have been taken up by corporates. And actually... Of those corporates, about 50% are the hyperscalers today. So you know that if you're going to have a successful project and you want to write a contract which will allow you to secure financing to build, you need to be dealing with with these hyperscalers. And actually, yeah, that's always been the case as an energy developer. You know, to get your project up to be viable, you needed to find a counterparty for your power. I think what's changing, certainly on the digital side, is that the hyperscalers are now... Having regard for where their energy comes from before they make decisions about where to locate their data centers, and this is because the data center demand is so significant on the grid. So if you go back ten years ago, you know the level of data center demand. You know hyperscaler customers might have been writing a contract for five megawatts. You know fast forward today, these hyperscaler customers are writing contracts for 100 megawatts, sometimes more than 100 megawatts. So all of a sudden, given that the amount of energy they're needing to run these data centers, you're actually having consideration for whether the grid can support that and then ultimately where that generation capacity is going to come from becomes super important for them. So it's almost like these customers are set stepping down and into the affairs of the energy developer because they want to be sure that they can get their renewable energy supply.
0: Now, can you give any examples of investments that Morrison has made or deals that you've transacted in the recent years that really exemplify this trend, that really exemplify this
1: convergence? We're invested on behalf of our capital, our underlying clients, which, just to recap, so, you know, Morrison manages money on behalf of large pension plans, superannuation funds, sovereign wealth, and high net worth individuals. We're entrusted with that money, and then we deploy it into investments. And, you know, some of those investments over the years have been data center providers. So we have you know, one of the largest uh, data center providers in the world that we, we are invested in and we manage. At the same time, we have renewable energy platforms around the world. Here in the US, Morrison invested capital on behalf of its clients into a business called Long Road Energy. And Long Road today is one of the largest developers of utility scale wind and solar in the United States. We have similar platforms in Europe, we have a similar platform in Asia as well as Australia. So when we look at those investments, we're privileged to see what's happening on the data center side, and we're seeing these incredible trends of customers wanting to write larger and larger contracts for many wet megawatts. And we're also looking from a developer side saying, actually, where do we deploy our capital to build a next utility-scale solar plant? And being able to match the two together. And increasingly, the conversations with the large hyperscale customers mean that you come to the table with both, the, both those elements. So you come to the table with the ability to build data centers. You come to the ability to give them confidence around the network capacity in the region and also the underlying renewable generation. So it's all coming together.
0: And the acceleration of digital infrastructure, obviously that's not a new trend. That's something that's been happening for a while. So why now is energy playing a bigger role? Is it just because the scale of what's needed is all of a sudden so much more dramatic?
1: There's two really interesting trends that have been playing out for data centers. So one is if you go back 10 years ago, most corporations had their computers running in the basement. If you went to visit a corporate, you would find them locked away in the basement. And those computers were running in in in-house data centers that were incredibly inefficient. So, for example, sort of the unit of efficiency measure is this power usage effectiveness, which basically is, is a measure that says for every unit of energy you need to run your computers, how much extra energy do you need to keep it core cool or other ancillary services? And if you go back 10 years ago in an in-house data center, the power usage effectiveness could have been over two. So, basically, for every, every unit of energy you need to run your computer, you need a whole other unit of energy to actually keep a core. Cool. And what we saw in the early phases of the transition on digital was that many of these facilities moved out of corporate data centers into centrally located data centers. And that immediately gave a power usage effectiveness improvement. So all of a sudden, instead of having a PUE of two, you might have 1.5. And now the industry is pretty much trending to 1.2 as the standard. So what that allowed the industry to do was, Whilst the demand for compute was increasing, actually through shifting to more efficient facilities, you found that the total usage of electricity broadly grew at the rate of GDP. As we know that energy consumption is very closely related to GDP, you found that data center consumption was broadly stable around that one5 to 2% of total load. But that gain is done. You cannot get PUEs going negative one and the rate of improvement from one point two towards one clearly slows dramatically if you look forward. So so that win has been taken, we can't get that anymore. So if you look forward, you know, the absolute increase in compute power cannot be compensated by PUE efficiency improvement. So we will see, therefore, a more more closely correlated demand increase for power. The other trend that's really interesting is that in the computer industry, there's this famous law called Moore's law. The idea that the number of transistors you can fit on a chip will double in every two years, which basically means that the amount of compute you can get in a circuit keeps improving. What's less less known is that there's another law called Kumi's law, which which basically said that whilst that transistor capacity was improving, actually the energy efficiency was improving. And actually at the same time, as, and quite dramatically. So, you know, the amount of energy used to run a particular unit of compute was halving almost every two years, similar in the way that Moore's law was increasing the density of these computer chips. So you had a wonderful trend that allowed us to continue to increase our compute with actually without increasing energy usage. Now that too is slowing. So Kumi's law is no longer, meaning we get doubling efficiency every two years or even less than two years. And that will have a major impact on how much power we need to run these these facilities. So those two trends, so the win on power usage effectiveness being done, and Kumi's law slowing, mean that we're about to enter a phase where we will see a rapid acceleration of energy use and energy use at the same time when renewable developers need to be thinking about these new end customers which is the, which are the hyperscalers
0: so from an investment standpoint how do you use that information to determine what makes a good investment what makes an appropriate investment
1: it's really about location so you know as as a developer you need to be thinking where are you going to develop your capacity and and in which grids, you're going to deliver that capacity and who you can contract with to make sure that your project is viable. Similarly, the hyperscalers are thinking really hard about where they can get grid capacity and ultimately renewable energy. It's obvious that those two have to come together. So as an energy developer, you need to be understanding what the hyperscale, where the hyperscalers are wanting to deploy their capacity. And as a hyperscaler, you need to be talking really closely to the renewable energy development community about where they can develop. And it's absolutely symbiotic because, uh, you know, a large hyperscale customer, you know, providing a commitment for energy consumption can automatically trigger, you know, a bunch of renewable development around that facility because they now have the certainty and the contracting party to make those projects viable. You know, the bit that's missing in the middle is the network and, you know, that's probably a subject for a whole nother discussion. But, you know, the network will be key to making sure you can connect the two.
0: Very interesting. So turning the focus to the renewable energy portion of it, I know Morrison's focused very much on the energy transition. And it's been an interesting couple of years for renewable energy. I think you saw a lot of headwinds that we hadn't seen in a long time, both from rising interest rates, which obviously affected investment across sectors, but then really dramatic supply chain issues trade issues specifically around renewable energy. But then on the positive side, you had some tailwinds, such as the Inflation Reduction Act and some other legislative help. Heading into 2024, an election year, with the IRA now starting to really be implemented, what's your view of the state of the U.S. renewable energy market?
1: Investors love certainty. In fact, investors can almost deal with any environment, as long as they know what that environment is likely to be so that we can price it properly. The Inflation Reduction Act was incredibly helpful for investors in terms of giving certainty around ITC and PTCs. And that has allowed a lot of projects to be planned properly and to make progress in the market, which is incredibly important because, you know, we need more energy generation in the US market. We need to ensure we're continuing down this transition path. You know, certainly, if I look back to 23 and 22, supply chain disruption was incredibly difficult to deal with. And in many cases, it meant that you know customers for the electricity and developers were having to sit down and work out what the new price of that electricity was. My observation as an investor watching that process, it took a while to work through, but actually a lot of those conversations were had and projects are now up and running and getting developed. You mentioned an election year Clearly, policy change is difficult for folks. So you may see some investors pausing for a while to have certainty. But I think the overriding theme around energy security, energy transmission is unstoppable. So there will be many projects developed this year because they are financed and and secured, irrespective of what happens on the political side.
0: And within the renewable energy space, what opportunities excite you the most looking into 2024?
1: We're big believers that this energy transition isn't done. So utility scale, solar with storage, we're seeing through our renewable platforms globally, there continues to be huge demand for that development. So we will be continuing to put capital into our platforms to develop those large projects. You know, at the same time, you know, we're really interested in what's happening on with alternative energies, you know, whether that's hydrogen or other forms of energy we have a keen interest in understanding how the aviation sector will over time decarbonize and that means we spend a lot of time thinking about sustainable aviation fuels and how they might be able to play a role in that but by and large our focus is on development of utility scale renewable projects as well as the acquisition of already existing operating projects
0: so you mentioned that the it being an election year some folks might slow down
1: their investment. Is it giving you any pause? We've got a very large pipeline in our development platforms. Much of that is outside of the US. So somewhat you know, operating in an environment largely independent from how policy settings here, here might, might impact. So we, we will see no slowdown there. Having said that, you know, we've been investors in renewable energy in the US through, through a Trump administration, through a Biden administration, And we will continue to be investors through the next administration.
0: Well, thank you for that. And then to take a a step back, looking broadly at infrastructure as an asset class, obviously, you've been in the space for a long time. Morrison has been focused on infrastructure about 35 years, if I have that right. That's right.
1: Yeah, Morrison has been investing in infrastructure for over 35 years.
0: So the last few years have challenged the infrastructure sector in a way that it hasn't been challenged in a long time with high interest rates. How do you think the asset class has performed and how do you think that's going to impact how investors, how pension funds, how other limited partners are going to look at the attractiveness of
1: infrastructure? It's really been infrastructure's moment to shine. We've been in an environment of relative high inflation, which means we've had the response from the central banks to raise rates. You know, from an infrastructure perspective, they're great assets to own in a rising rate environment because you often have very good inflation protection. So whilst rates might be rising, your cash flows are also increasing because your revenue line protects you from the inflationary impact. We look across our portfolio it's been an incredible performance and resilience in what otherwise is quite quite difficult macro environment. So I think, you know, investors should look at this period of time and say actually, you know, their infrastructure portfolios have performed very well when other asset classes have been incredibly volatile and really think about actually how much they want to allocate to the sector going forward. And, you know, our view, and obviously we're biased as an infrastructure investor, is actually, you know, the proportion of your total portfolio, infrastructure can play an, an even more important role going forward. The other point to note on infrastructure, as opposed to private equity, typically the level of leverage, so the amount of debt used to acquire these assets is lower. So you haven't seen the stress on these assets due to rising rates, as you might see in other very highly levered private equity investments.
0: Very interesting. It's definitely a trend we're going to be watching in 2024, as will a lot of these things that we've discussed today. Will, thank you so much for joining. I wish we had more time, but really appreciate you coming on and think we had a great discussion.
1: Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me.
0: And thank you for tuning in to Crossroads, the infrastructure podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast player and please give us a five star rating so that other listeners can find our podcast. Until next time, this has been Crossroads.